to, you know, ask, not to sound cliche, but ask the tough questions at some of these news conferences and not just not just accept the sort of the press release view of things um, from the diocese. Sexual misconduct by priests has become an all-too-familiar story in the news, but what if it's your community that's affected? If you're an investigative reporter, you dig deep to uncover all the details. I'm Michael O'Connell, and this is It's All Journalism. Welcome to It's All Journalism. I'm Michael O'Connell, here with another podcast about people making good journalism. I'm joined in studio today by one of our producers, Amelia Brust. Hey, Amelia. Hi, Mike. In March 2018, the Diocese of Buffalo released a list of 42 priests accused of abuse. In a series of special reports, Charlie Speck, an investigative reporter for 7 Eyewitness News in Buffalo, documented how Bishop Richard J. Malone addressed the sexual abuse and the misconduct in his diocese. Today we're going to be talking about the I-Team's investigative reporting on this case. So, first of all, I wanted to applaud you, applaud you for your work. It's really a big story. It's really impactful. You, you've clearly done a lot of homework on it. Can you tell me how this kind of story started for you? Yeah, this is the rare investigative story that we didn't really pre-plan things and come out with a, you know, sort of drop a big story to get things going. This was a story that every reporter in town was at some point working on. There was a man who, name of Michael Whalen, who was just a sort of a regular guy from South Buffalo, and he had a press conference in March in front of uh, the Diocese of Buffalo headquarters. And he said, I was sexually abused by uh, a man named Father Norbert Orsolitz, who was his parish priest in the 1980s. And um, he just sort of wanted to tell his story. It was very simple. It was a heartfelt story, and it looked to be sort of a one-off, if you will. The story might last a couple days. However, that night, there was actually one of my competitors, a reporter for the, the local newspaper, went to that priest's house that night to get his comment, and that priest, Father Orsolitz, just flat out admitted to, he said he abused dozens of boys over the years while he was a priest. Wow. That's, yeah, that sort of set off alarm bells throughout this community. Like, holy cow, this problem is a lot bigger than, than we've ever been led on to believe. So where did you go with this story then? I mean, you know, what was your strategy? The first thing I wanted to do was try to get in touch with victims because I felt like the best service we can do to the public is, is to tell their stories. And we, we were able to find victims a little bit easier than maybe they, they had in years past. And I think part of it honestly had to do with, you know, sort of the Me Too movement, uh, sexual abuse victims of all stripes coming out now, and the, the tables have sort of been turned so that it's not, um, it, it, uh, how do I say this, the tables have sort of been turned now so that the accused get more of the attention and the accusers aren't, you know, don't face so much blowback from coming out. So I did speak with a couple victims, and we were able to do a few stories that showed historically the sexual abuse in Buffalo was known to the bishops at the time. We we were able to trace it back to the last three bishops, and we had uh, documents that some of the victims had collected, actually, that showed that historically in the Diocese of Buffalo, people would come forward with claims of abuse, the priest would be sent to one of these treatment centers, and, and this one was in Toronto, and then put you know, somewhere across town where they go on to, in many cases, 
uh, reoffend again. So, so we were able to sort of lay out a historical cover up here. And then I think really what happened was a lot of there were whistleblowers within the church who saw those stories and contacted us and said it, it's not just a thing of the past. This is still going on. Yeah, and actually that was one of the things that that I found really fascinating about your story, uh, both the um, the TV piece that you did, the several TV TV pieces that you did that people can view online, but also the documentation that you had. You know, correspondence within the diocese, correspondence from from the Pope, even about you know priests who were involved in this. How did these documents come to light? Were they all just things that people had sort of tracked down, or, or was there, you know, what resources that were out there for you to tap into? Well, we were able to track down a few whistleblowers. Of, of course, I can't say, you know, who, who they were, but yeah, of course, they felt they felt morally compelled to sort of come forward because they felt like, you know, things were still being obscured from the public since the 2002 scandal. People in Buffalo have been told by various bishops and church leaders that essentially we didn't have this problem here. We were some sort of an exception to the rule. Hey, if we had a problem here, you would have heard about it. And what ended up being was that a lot of the information on this was locked away, you know, in file cabinets in what they call the secret archives of the church. And once you started opening those file cabinets, you started realizing that that there's a pattern here within the Catholic Church, and it's still going on today. It sort of coincided. It's where past history and, and you know present day sort of collided. In, in March, the Diocese of Buffalo put out a list of 42 priests who it said had essentially um, abused children and had been removed from ministry. And we took that list, and that was a starting point for a sort of a roadmap. And we started looking at where these priests were assigned and we were able to find patterns that showed that they were more or less shuffled around uh, from parish to parish. Yeah, and actually that's one of the nice things about getting a lot of this data that you're able to develop. You know, you're able to look at it analytically and say, okay, you can examine where people are sort of moved around and the way that the uh, the church is re- responding to it. What What about the diocese? What about the bishop? Was there, you know, was there a willingness to talk to you about about the story? In the very beginning, the church put on a very media friendly front, saying, you know, we'll give you whatever kind of documentation you guys need. This is it, basically saying these are all the secrets that we have. We're coming forward. They had a news conference. They said these are the forty two priests these men and these men only, and we're coming clean, so to speak. But then the victims were angry because they looked at that list of 42 and they said, wait a minute, my abuser's not on that list. And that happened dozens and dozens of times. As we kept reporting on this, as the reporting got more critical, the church sort of went into damage control mode and they, the bishop would emerge for a quick news conference maybe but that only happened two or three times. As we sit here today, the bishop has not answered questions in more than two months about any of this. They started hiding behind prepared statements. They've gone through a number of spokespeople who have uh, quit, and they brought new ones on. But the response to the public, you know, according to the parishioners, has really, you know, in their minds, been anything but transparent. Has this changed the way that you're 
audiences in Buffalo have seen how they see your news organization? I mean, you tweeted a photo of somebody, I think maybe a protester standing outside of church, actually calling on abusers to contact you guys before you call them. So and this story, not to downplay what's happened in, in Buffalo, it's really serious, but this type of story has happened now so many times around the country that personally it seems to me that people are way less patient with uh, church officials when a story like this happens and they're they're way more eager for media to you know put out as much information on it as possible so they they want transparency they want answers so I'm just wondering has this kind of made people pay more attention to the news that you guys are putting out at the station it absolutely has we are the number three station in town as far as ratings go. We're fixing, we're in the process of trying to fix that, but we are really trying to develop a reputation for investigative reporting. And my sources had said to me, as the different media outlets were covering this, they're sort of vetting us. They're deciding, well, if we do end up going public, who are we going to choose here? Who are we going to I actually ended up contacting them before they, they got a hold of me, but they had seen our work and they had seen that we were we were willing to, you know, ask, not to sound cliche, but ask the tough questions at some of these news conferences and not just not just accept the sort of the press release view of things um, from the diocese. I think as far as the public goes, the moral authority of the church has almost been totally destroyed here in the diocese of Buffalo. The I expected the public to sort of attack us, attack our news outlet, and say that we are going after the church and stop picking on us. And maybe we got, I don't know, maybe three or four, honestly, of those calls. Every other piece of feedback we've gotten has been positive, and most of it is coming from Catholics who are just so sick about hearing about these bishops and about their church in the local news and the national news, and they feel like, wait a minute, I thought we took care of this problem 15 years ago, and and you're still lying to us. So I, I think that abuse happens, and it happens in all aspects of society. But what people really don't like is being lied to, and that's what really gets people up in arms. That's what gets Catholics in, in Buffalo up in arms, the whole idea that this has been in your filing cabinets, this has been around for decades. We knew these priests. We We trusted our kids with these priests. And you kept this from us for all these years. There's been, there's been a, a big backlash towards that. Yeah, it, it's funny. I remember going to election. I don't remember the, the name of the person, but he was a, an investigative reporter. And he was somebody who relied heavily on getting documentation. And he said there's always, there are always documents. You just got to keep looking and looking that somebody has saved some information. Maybe it's a... You know, maybe it's a receipt, maybe it's a letter, maybe it's a report, but there's always documents out there that are going to, is going to support your story. Now, you spoke to victims, and you know, granted, you know, some of these victims, the abuse had happened years and years before. You know, as a journalist, did you, you know, do you have any particular special approach in talking to victims about about their experiences? Yeah, I would say that you have to be a human first and sort of a reporter second because. You know, unlike an interview where, you know, there's plenty of interviews with with talking heads or with public officials where, you know, it's sort of all business. It's more of a transaction. You're there to get information. They're there to get their point across. But with with victims of such heinous crimes, I mean, it's very hard for them to even decide that they're going to open up. 
and most of them have never dealt with the media before. And so you just sort of, my, my attitude was, let's try to build some sort of trust with them. I would, first of all, I would apologize, even though I didn't do anything wrong. I, I still felt awful about what happened to them. I would apologize and say, I'm very sorry that, that you've gone through this and thank them for, for coming forward. And, you know, in many cases, it was sort of an on-again, off-again thing. They would want to come forward, then they would think, no, I shouldn't, and then they think, they get angry and say, yeah, I want to come forward, and then they get scared. And, and whatever their decision was, I I basically accepted it, and I said, you know, I don't want you to do anything that you don't want to do. This is your story. This is not my story. That ended up paying off because we, we really did develop uh, trust with these victims, and they felt like when they were ready to come forward, that they, they went to us and they went to our uh, media outlet. And when they started seeing some of the deception that was going on at the hands of the leaders in the church, then they really got angry. And I said, I'm, I'm coming forward because the truth needs to get out. So tell me about what the I-team, the type of work you do in writing these big stories. You know, how is it different than, than other type of reporting that people may see on TV? This type of investigative reporting, I think people generally are thinking about newspapers when they think of, you know, sort of hardcore, in-depth investigative reporting. And it's not always done on, on television. And it can be hard to sort of visualize some of these documents on TV, quite frankly. But we try to go after the documents, and we feel like if you make it compelling enough and you get a mix not only of documentation but of, you know, of people, of characters sort of telling their story, that people will watch. I mean, we, we put out three packages that were nine minutes long each, which is unheard of in local TV, and people watched it, and they, they clicked on it, and they were willing, as long as we weren't wasting their time, they were willing to to watch these things. So we we try to put something together. We don't have a limit when we first start. We try to tell the best story we can. In these stories, we just had so much documentation that we didn't want to leave anything out that would sort of, you know, fill in what exactly what exactly happened here. So uh, we may, you know, we may do a story and, and, and put a one-day story out there on TV, but oftentimes that acts as almost like a signal to people, and they'll send us more tips on that subject. So we, we've been pretty much inundated with tips. I'm, I'm working on another big story right now, and I have another one coming out in November, so there's like no end in sight here on this story. And uh, you've also been using social media between stories, like to share your notes and to uh, share, you know, little details as they happen. Is that something that you've always done, or is that something that you kind of started to do with this story? It also is, um, it's kind of a sign of, of this current age in journalism where like even if you're in print you can't really wait to hold on to good details of a story for too long cuz somebody else will share them or you you want people to to stay tuned to what you're covering. Yeah, social media has really been key and I've always used it but uh what really uh made me use it more on this story is that there's a real active uh, contingency out there of victims and activists and sort of advocates for victims. And we would put an article out there and we get like t 20 people to like retweet it within minutes. And I thought, well, people are really listening here and, and they're really like engaging. So it's not just me sort of spitting out my stories. 
doing it like, you know, it's an obligation. It was more like we're actually, you know, getting a conversation here, which is, you know, I think sort of the whole point about about social media. And we also started getting a lot of tips. I find that it can be sort of tedious or complicated for people. You know, if you call a newspaper or a TV station, you know, you got to find the number. You got to you have to find out who you should be talking to. Newsrooms are sort of crazy places, so it's it's confusing. You know, people see my story on TV. They whip out their phone and just send me a message on Facebook with a tip. That's a lot easier. The bar is a lot lower there. So we started getting a lot of tips through that, and that's when I really, you know, decided, hey, the, you know, I should really be paying more attention to this, and it's really paid off. So usually at some point I like to ask people, uh, you know, tell me about their journalist journey. How did you end up at uh, Channel 7 in Buffalo? You know, what got you interested in reporting and broadcasting? Well, I actually come from a print background. I always uh, wanted to be a newspaper reporter, and I I worked for the Buffalo News, which is the daily newspaper in Buffalo. I went to St. Bonaventure University, studied journalism there, and I got hired at the Buffalo News out of college. I left about three years in and took a job in government in public relations, and I and I really hated it from day one, and I was determined to get back you know, into journalism. So it really, it was a sort of a coincidence that just so happened that Channel 7 was hiring. I had done an internship at Meet the Press in college, so I was sort of familiar with TV. But I, I said, you know, very very honestly said to my bosses, I, I can dig, I can get the information, I can uncover stuff, but you're going to have to, you know, sort of show me how to put makeup on and that sort of thing. And I find that it's a different experience in broadcast and in print. I think more people know who you are, and they're more... I I get maybe 10 times the amount of tips that I used to get when I was writing for the paper, because people sort of know who you are, and they they reach out to you, you know, if they like you, uh, they really like you. If they don't, (laughs) they really don't. But it's been a different experience. I, I remember being sort of out of journalism for those couple of years, the three-year period before I got back. And um, it was when the movie Spotlight was going on, and I used to you know, go to the movie theater. I must have seen that movie six, seven times and just thinking to myself, God, if I could just get back into journalism and, and do something like, like that, um, it would be it would be, you know, just what I was looking for. And then lo and behold, we have this huge scandal here in Buffalo. I never could have, I never could have imagined it, but it is uh, a nice way to, uh, you know, to get back into it. Yeah, exactly what <laughs> what was in the movie Spotlight, Spotlight almost the exact same Yeah, story. like weirdly similar. Like, I mean, when you said, oh, the priests in the diocese would be sent to these treatment centers, I think anybody who saw that movie, you hear the term treatment center and you're like, oh, I know yeah. where this is going. Yeah, I talked to Mike Rosendis from the Boston Globe when I was, I sort of hit a dead end early on in this process. And I said, said, you know, I'm having a real hard time getting victims to come forward and talk. Do you have any advice? And he said, you know, that to start with their lawyers, try to find lawyers who who represent these people. That was key. That was great advice. There's been comparisons drawn because Buffalo is very, very Catholic. There's a couple of the lawyers that are involved in Buffalo now that were, you know, uh, working on the Boston case. And they've said, as far as similarities go, the big 
similarity is that the culture of the city it's so deeply catholic so as far as the scandal goes what what that means is that there was a great deference to the church so you know there's a lot of irish cops in buffalo there's a lot of irish judges there's a lot of the establishment in in this town it's a very sort of insider's town and and there's a lot of catholics among that you know, sort of the upper class of Buffalo, and I think the church benefited from that for many years. Where do you, where do you see the story going at this point? I mean, you've, you've written three stories. There's a lot of documentation. There's video, et cetera, on, on the website. You said before that you were working on another story. Are you just going to sort of keep an eye on this and as new things develop, develop you're, you're going to uh, add to it, or do you have other things in stories already planned for where this is headed? Well, we're trying to get at some of the root causes of this. It's a complex problem, and there's probably complex answers for why this all happens. But one of the things that we've seen around the country is the seminaries, the way that young men are prepared to be priests. And obviously, it's it's only men at this point. There's people that think that should change. The seminary in the Archdiocese of Boston, actually, is now uh, under investigation for sexual misconduct happening there. You have the McCarrick situation, which you guys know about, going after seminarians. And I've heard, I'm working on a story about the Buffalo Diocese Seminary, which sort of had a reputation as a very liberal-minded seminary when it when it comes to sexuality. There's a lot of priests talking about the sexual culture there. There's a small minority of priests when you come down to it, that are abusing children. But if you look at some of the studies, somewhere between 40 and 60% of priests are said to be sexually active. So there's a lot of priests that have these double lives, and there's this, there's an institutional blackmail that happens, which makes you know churches a great place for pedophiles to sort of thrive in. So we're, we're trying to get to the bottom of that and sort of look at you know, some of the root root causes for this whole thing. And, and obviously, you know, it, it goes right right up to the Vatican in Rome as the Pope himself is now under, you know, suspicion for, for his own actions in dealing with this problem. Do you see any potential legislation coming about because of this, like what's been proposed in Pennsylvania? Yeah, there's actually, even before Pennsylvania statute of limitations, you know, was was proposed, there actually is already a law, it's called the, a bill rather, it's called the Child Victims Act, and it's been before the legislature in, in Albany for really for years now, but the last couple of years there's been a, a big push to get this approved. It's being held up. Our legislature is half Democrat, half Republican. The Democrats control what's essentially the House, uh, we call it the Assembly, and the Republicans control the Senate. And they've been unwilling to um, to extend the statute of limitations. New York has the has the most among the most restrictive statutes of limitation when it comes to sexual crimes. If you don't report it, I think it's five years after it happened. If it happened when you were a minor, you have until I think it's age 25 to report it, or else you can't get any justice in the court system. So there's a lot of people who are saying that that that's totally you know ridiculous and that it needs to be extended because a lot of people deal with this, you know, years, decades, really, later. I see that happening if the legislature changes a political party. And there's there's actually, it's sort of interesting, there's people who think that uh, Buffalo and New York and a bunch of other dioceses in New York, uh, 
did these settlement programs where they offered to pay out money to victims of of sexual abuse. The the Buffalo Diocese is we have records that show they're planning on paying between ten and twelve million dollars in in settlements. But if any of these people were able to actually sue in a court of law, they could be getting millions of dollars individually, each victim. So there's people who say, well, those settlement programs is an, are an attempt to get these people in now to give them pennies, what is essentially pennies on the dollar from what they would get, get them to sign a piece of paper that says they can never sue, and then and then they'll go to the legislature and say, look, no need to change any laws here. The church is taking care of this. We're taking care of our own here. You don't need to go and, and change the statute of limitations here. It's good that there are reporters out there like you who are, are covering this story, keeping it in people's minds, you know, maybe motivating people to put some pressure on lawmakers to make some change, and also, of course, putting pressure on the church to to try to implement some more changes. Charlie, you know, your project is, you know, it's a great read. There's so much in it. It's a big story. Thanks for coming on the podcast, sharing, you know, what went into it. Uh, we're going to make sure that people will be able to have a link to your your uh, your content so they can check it out themselves. And I, and I definitely encourage them to do it. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital news. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. It takes a lot of people to put together an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy provided our web content. Amelia Brust helped with our booking. Nicholas Hunter helped with the website. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Would you like to find out more about our podcast? Go to itsalljournalism.com and sign up for our weekly email newsletter. You'll receive weekly updates about upcoming episodes and special events that we've got in the works. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks again for listening.